0: Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let's, uh, let's get back to that. And if you've been following along, along in this study, you know the book of 2 Corinthians is all about ministry, and you'll know by now that chapters number 8 and 9 are actually on the theme of giving. And uh, you know, some questions come to your mind when you think about New Testament giving, what is the proper way to give? Uh, how much is expected of me? To give as a faithful believer in Jesus Christ. Sometimes you may wonder why is it that everyone these days seems to be asking for your money. I mean, can't I just go to church one day and relax for free? <laughs> relax. Yes, you you can do whatever you want for free. Don't. First Baptist Church is never going to pressure anybody to give in any way, shape, or form. I promise you that. And the reason is because God doesn't do that. And there's no reason for us to do it. But if you're a faithful believer and you're a part of this assembly, you want to know some things like, should I tithe? That tithe, meaning the tenth of my income. Should I not? What about missions? What about some of these things? So today we're going to look at a very simple passage of Scripture. It's three verses. It's actually one sentence. We gather together to study one sentence. And uh, the title that I've given today's message is Giving God's Way. Giving God's Way. I think in these three verses, in this one extended sentence, the Lord really does give us the outline on the manner in which we're supposed to be giving. Now, before we get into that, let me just remind you of the historical context of what was going on back in Corinth in the day. Paul is collecting aid, financial aid, for poor saints in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he's going among the Gentile churches and he's receiving offerings to bring back, to help the Christians back in Jerusalem who are having a tough time. And if you want to take your time and research those, we're not going to read those verses together, but you've got it in Romans 15, 25 to 27. I think I put them in your notes. First Corinthians 16, the first three verses, they talk about Paul's mission to go out and raise the money for them. But while we're here in chapter 8 of Second Corinthians, um we see it for example in verse number 4 where it says praying us with much entreaty. Paul here is bragging about the sacrifice of the churches of Macedonia and talking about them he says praying us the missionary team with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints and and literally historically he's talking about the ministering to the saints that are in need in another location in Jerusalem. And he goes on in verse 11 that we saw last week. It says, Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. And so Paul literally is setting them up and talking about this this need and this offering that needs to be collected for others. He's now telling the Corinthians, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn to participate, and here's how you're going to do it. Verses 13, 14, and 15. This is the backdrop through which the Holy Spirit's going to teach us the principles of New Testament giving. In this one singular sentence, I believe we're going to see the pattern on giving God's way. So if you'll just follow along, I'll start in verse 13. We'll read these verses. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened, but by inequality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want. That there may be equality, as it is written. He that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. Very interesting sentence, some really good info I think you're going to get out of this. Let's ask the Lord to be our teacher and see what we can draw out of this passage. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And as we have already discussed, Lord, our hearts are heavy for the Trotter family. I do just want to pray for them and your comfort that just just passes all human understanding and strength, that you would just wrap your loving arms around them and guide them step by step through this whole process. Lord, as we come before your word now, we do ask that you would do what only you can do, and that is be our teacher. Help us to see what we need to see, and and Lord, as many of us as are listening, everybody's at different places in their growth and faith in you. And I just pray that you would have a word for each of us, that everybody could go away knowing, I heard from the Lord today. That's our desire. So, Lord, speak. Your servant hears. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. The first thing, the first blank you have, point number one, is by grace. Uh, giving God's way is going to be giving by grace, and and this comes to us in verse number thirteen. Now. We understand that we, as Christian people, are to give because God is a giver, right? And we strive to be like Him. Uh, the very word grace literally means a gift. You didn't deserve it. Somebody just gave you something, right? So that's what grace is. Grace is a gift. And according to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, God is called the God of all grace. He's a great giver. And His ultimate gift, Romans 6.23, is the gift of eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so he gives and gives and gives more, and we strive to be like him, so we should strive to be givers also. It's interesting, the ultimate gift certainly is our eternal life, and I want to make a parallel in today's message. I believe that New Testament giving is associated in some way with our salvation, and and there's a sense to that. I'm going to explain here in a second. In other words... We shouldn't be surprised to see that the elements associated with proper giving are similar to the elements of biblical salvation. The manner in which we appropriate our eternal salvation, the manner in which we receive the gifts of God, is the same manner in which we are to be givers like God. You could say we are saved to be givers. Sometimes people use a different term. They use a term that maybe they're a little more comfortable with or they've heard before. We are blessed to be a blessing, right? God didn't give everything to you just to store and to keep for yourself. He gave it to you so you could share it with others around you, and that's the idea that we see. Now, there's no question that salvation is by grace, and there's no question that giving is a grace. In fact, if you just glance back at verse number seven that we looked at last time, "Therefore, as ye abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and all diligence and your love unto us, see that ye abound in this grace, also the grace of giving." And in fact, it even goes on, and it says in verse number nine, "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ." And though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is demonstrated in the fact that he sacrificed a level of richness in eternity with God the Father to live as a simple man down on earth so that we then can be partakers of the eternal richness that he shared with the Father. This is the grace of God. And so therefore, salvation is by grace, giving is a grace, and since it's a grace, since it is by grace, well then, what it is not is by law. What it is not is by works. That's by definition. Romans chapter 11 and verse 6 makes that very clear. It says, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. It nullifies the very meaning of what grace is if you work for it, and earn it. Your paycheck at the end of the month is not somebody's grace to you. You worked for that. Right? And it goes on it says, but if it be of works, well, then it's not grace. Right? Otherwise, what's work? Work isn't work if it's grace when you work. Work and grace, those are opposite. Right? So it's a grace. It's a gift. It's not by law and it's not by works. And, and that's important to understand when we get into verse 13. And that's where we're at right here. He starts off by saying, For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened. What Paul is saying here is God is not setting up some scenario where some select few really good Christians work really hard and give away a whole bunch so that a whole bunch of other lazy deadbeat Christians can just sit on their blessed assurance and do nothing. This is not the system that God is setting up. There's no question about that. In fact, that might remind you of another system that does exist. That might remind you of very common systems in human governments. And in human governments, I think we've already covered it enough that I think we know who the spiritual force behind human governments is. By the way, any government-run system with required taxation, where you're punished if you don't participate, whether it's a democratic, state-run welfare, or whatever it's gonna result in, what we know it results in, killing individual motivation, killing work ethic. Of course, the extreme example of that is Marxist communism, where everybody gets an equal share of the goods, without necessarily doing their fair share of the work. And history has already proven, we don't need to labor on this, that such a system never works in the long run. They can they can prop it up for the short term, it never works in the long run. And why is that? Why does such a system that seems so benevolent? I mean literally if you say everybody's pitching in and helping each other, isn't that a good thing? Yeah, but it never works. Why? Because of sin nature. Because we're humans with sin nature, that's why. Because man is man, and man is always going to look to get away with the minimum requirement. We're always looking to do as little as possible to get by and get as much as we possibly can. I mean, face it, Robin Hood is a great kid story. But the people who had money in Nottingham, they were ticked. I mean, this robbing from the rich and giving to the poor thing, I mean, that's good for the kiddies. It really doesn't work in, in social society. So what is Paul actually saying? He's saying in verse 13, that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing. And what he's pointing out is, and I put this in your notes, the failure of compulsion. The failure of compelling people to do something against their will, you see, so, for example, in the Old Testament economy, the tithe was something that was required. In fact, if you really studied it, there were multiple tithes. They added up to way more than just 10%. There was tithes of this and of that and of this. And by the time you were done, you were up in the 25 to 30% range, actually. That's another issue. It doesn't matter. All I want to point out is in the Old Testament economy, according to the Mosaic law, the tithe was a legal requirement. It was mandated, right? Not giving it was breaking the law, and it resulted in punishment. And so that's not the system of New Testament giving. And and you'll say, well, wait a minute, the law is perfect and holy and pure and righteous. Yes, it absolutely was. And it was very effective, but only temporarily, Because it was effective for the purpose for which it was given. And the purpose for which it was given is to be a training tool to get you to grace. That's what it was for. That's what Galatians 3.24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, our teacher, our trainer, to bring us to Christ. And now that Christ is here, and now that the gift of grace is freely bestowed to the uttermost in your life, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places are yours. You don't need a law anymore. You don't need a legal requirement anymore. We're not setting it up so that you got to work really hard and other people do nothing. That's not what's being set up here. Any kind of legalistic giving is not giving God's way. Because God wants a relationship, and God wants a willing sacrifice. And this is the theme. This is the message of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. If you just glance ahead, one of the most well-known verses of these chapters is chapter 9 and verse number 7, right, where it says, Every man according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, not of necessity. God loveth a cheerful giver. That's what God's looking for right? The New Testament church is called the bride of Jesus Christ. And Jesus loves his bride. He loves his bride. He gave himself for it, Ephesians 5.25. There's no legalistic standard over his bride. There's no compulsion. Give whatever you want to give. Right? 2 Corinthians 9, 7. As he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, not of necessity, just be free today, y'all. Just be free and let the grace of God work in and through you. You give in response to your love for the Lord. And that's what we saw back in verse number 8 where Paul said, I speak not by commandment. We're not setting up a new law. But by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. And and we preachers can take that verse and run with it and not in error, by the way. Because if you refuse to participate, well, then you are proving something to everybody. Whether everybody knows about it or not. You're proving something to the Lord. How sincere is your actual love and humility and thankfulness for all the grace he's bestowed upon you? You see, this is how the Lord wants to look at it. So giving, like salvation, is by grace. And as a result, I might add, it's a whole lot more enjoyable when you view it that way, right? whole lot more enjoyable. Okay, let's get into our second point. Giving is also with purpose. And this is verse 14. And Again, like your salvation, right? Your salvation, you have been saved for a purpose. So Ephesians 2:8-9 by grace through faith, but Ephesians 2.10 then gives us the purpose. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This purpose, the purpose of our giving, It really is the main point. It's the main focus of this one sentence that encompasses three verses. It's found in this particular verse. Verse 13 says, it's not of compulsion. It's not of necessity. It's not of the law. But in verse 14, it goes on, it says, but, contrasting that, by inequality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality, fairness. So this issue of equality pops up again. Again, we're not talking about some socialistic mandated equality. I mean, face it, in a, in a socialistic communistic system, And in case it's bugging you that I keep saying that, I I lived in one for a long time. I understand. Everyone is equal. Yeah. But some people are more equal than others. (laughs) So what is biblical equality? I mean, really. I mean, we've got to define it biblically. What exactly is biblical equality? Well, again, if we go back to the history of the context of what was happening in the day when Paul wrote this letter... He's referring to a collection that's being received for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And when he first started to collect, the Corinthians really didn't have much. And so he's bragging on the churches of Macedonia who also didn't have much. But he he comes to them now in 2 Corinthians. Some time has passed and he says, but now they have come into some money. Now they have abundance. Abundance. Right, That's what it says, but by an equality that now at this time, your abundance that you now have may be a supply for the needs of others who don't have it. So Paul unashamedly asks them to give of it and to help. And you know what the idea is very simply? These are principles of Scripture that most of you have already known. The idea is very simply, the body of Christ takes care of itself. That's what the body of Christ does. And in the great chapter talking about the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let me just remind you starting in verse 25 where he says that there should be no schism, no division in the body, but the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. And don't forget, ye are the body of Christ and members, each of you in particular. So the obvious illustrations, you've heard them before. If your foot is hurting and your hand can help it out, it does. The hand doesn't say to the foot, "Well, you know, stinks to be you. I'm doing just fine up here. Because if and when that happens, then, you know, in our little story, the foot then replies to the hand, okay, great, don't help me out, but good luck getting across the room doing what you want to do without me. We just don't view one another in the church as a unified, collective body all working together, like we should. So literally, when others have need, You might want to consider that God has graced you with abundance for the purpose that you can meet that need. So give it. I mean, give it. And if and when your time comes to have need, just trust that God will move others who have abundance to help meet your need. This is the situation that he's describing. This is the biblical equality that is promoted in the New Testament. And I can feel it already, y'all. You're tightening up just a little. Just relax. It's all good. We're all friends here. Almost everybody, I guess. I don't know. The word equality, as it is written, equality, only appears right here. It doesn't appear equality as such anywhere else in the scripture. But the same exact word in a shorter form, equal, does appear in Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 1. The exact same word where it says this. Colossians 4, 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. So equal is the word that is used, right, in the context. Once again, in Colossians chapter 4, the context is giving. It's giving. It's giving. And it's masters giving to servants. You could make the application that we often have. You have, for example, an employer and an employee, somebody who's funding somebody else to get some work done for them, right? And that's exactly what we see. Masters, pay your servants. Give unto the servants that which is just and equal. What are the servants going to do? The servants are going to go out and do a bunch of work. Oh, and by the way, the work that the servants do... Don't you think the master benefits from the work they do? There's reward that comes from their labor. The servant gets a job done, right? He works in the field. He gathers the corn. He feeds the animals. He whatever he does, the master benefits from the fact that the servant is out getting some work done. So he's like, don't cheat him. Don't leave him without some assistance. Help him out, right? Be generous. Don't, don't hoard it for yourself, So we have this example, of course we have a scriptural example from the early New Testament church. It's found at the end of Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 33, it says this, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, And brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now this is not, as some have wrongly commented, some form of Christian communism. This is not mandated. This is what it says it is in verse 33. Great grace this is great grace functioning in and through spirit-filled believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the giving was done with purpose. There was a need. There was, we, they looked among themselves, and some had abundance, and some had need. And they're like, oh, we'll just sell off this stuff, and we'll give it to you. Give it to them. We're good. We're fine. That's the way we're going to play it. Those who had gave, and those who needed received it's just that simple and there was as a result imagine that there was no more need there was no longer anybody that lacked because they had this attitude i've got a little expression that i say a lot and i usually only say it when i'm frustrated here goes the millennium's going to be awesome now i say that when i look at the life today and i'm like life today is awful but the millennium's going to be awesome I want you to consider that little phrase here. Because as we consider oh man I'm just I know I know what you're thinking. I know I know you're thinking. I know where this is going. I got some stuff and you want it. No, man, I just <laughs> But this system that we're describing will be in full operation in the Millennial Kingdom. And it's going to be awesome. But people are afraid today. You're afraid to let it go because you'll go help somebody else, but doggone it, I know they ain't helping me when it's my turn, and so I'm just going to hang on to mine and let them work for their own. And you figure out your favorite way to justify it away, but it's hard to live this way for some people. It's just hard to live this way. But what he says is, look, this is the kind of giving that you need to be a part of. This is the principle of Galatians 6. And verse number two, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, I would direct your attention to the fact that this sentence in verse 13 begins with the word for, connecting it back to verse 12, which actually connects back to other verses, but let's look for a second at verse 12, because where it says, For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened, comes off the heels of verse 12, which said, For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. So the issue that we all need to confront is, what do you have? Because God never asks you to give what you don't have, verse number 12. And for us especially in North America, what do we have in abundance? What do we have? You answer that question. It's not for me to answer. Now, let's look at that word abundance because obviously you know what the word means. It means overflow. It means excess. It means extra. And it's really only used here. And in the Gospels. And what you see in the Gospels, with one exception, there's a different reference, but three of the Gospels have basically this same verse. And I quoted Matthew twelve, thirty-four for you, where it says, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. And I think that's significant because the heart, in this scenario that Jesus is talking about in Matthew twelve, has an abundance, it has extra, it has more than it needs. What is the heart going to do with the abundance that it has? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't do. It doesn't keep it for itself. It has to allocate it to go somewhere else. Where does it go? It goes straight to the mouth. The abundance of the heart never stays in the heart. Do you see that? And this is the idea that he's talking about. That's actually important, and we're going to get to that before we're done, but just bookmark that for a second. What I want you to see for now is, and this is the next point in your notes, is that giving is a matter of stewardship, Giving is a matter of stewardship, and we've got like three stories, parables that come out of the Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to summarize them for you for time's sake, but the first one's in Luke 16, and it's the first 15 verses, and this is the story of the steward who was a bad steward. He wasted his master's goods, and then the master comes back to take account of the guy, and the guy's busted. And he knows he's busted, he's done a bad job, and he's about to be fired. And so the guy runs out and he starts cutting deals with the guys that owe his master money. And he says, hey, you owe him this much, just write a bill for this much and we'll call it good. And by the time the guy cuts enough deals with people, and the only reason he's doing it is to save his own neck. He's cutting deals with people because he's like, when I get fired, and boy, I'm getting fired. Maybe these guys will be my friends because I did them a solid, you know. And so he does this deal. By the time he's done, the master looks at the servant and he's like, hey, good job, buddy, good job. Because you know what you finally did? You finally did something. You got something instead of nothing like you had been doing. And so he praises him for that. And then after the story, the parable, the story part is done, right? Then we get into the lesson part. Jesus always uses these illustrations to teach the lesson. The lesson jumps in at verse 10. And he says this. He that is faithful in that which is least... Is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, you know that that's the old word for money, right? These are the things that are the least. Faithful in the least would be your, your finances, right? Who will commit to your trust true riches? Those are things that are much, right? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? So the issue with money is that it's a test. It's just a test. How you manage, or should I say steward, the money God has given unto you, well, it just reveals your true character. Money itself has no intrinsic value. Most certainly, the dirty pieces of paper wadded up in your wallet in of themselves have no intrinsic value other than they can be exchanged for something that has value. Right? And so some of you are old enough to remember or study history enough to know that, yeah, that paper money, we never should have come off the gold standard and all that kind of stuff. Okay, that's fine. I get that. But even gold... I mean, what real value does gold have? Except that you could trade it for something else that really matters. In other words, let me say it this way In heaven, right? In heaven, we talk about the streets of gold, right? What a wonderful place it'll be, man. The streets are made of gold. I think the Lord's just trying to tell us gold in heaven, it's just asphalt. Who cares? It's junk we pave roads with. It means nothing. If you got a bunch of it, you need to use it now to get true riches. You're proving your character, which means, this is in your notes, giving is actually investing. That's giving with purpose. When you invest, you're giving with a purpose, right? So there's another parable, and it's in Luke 19, and it goes from 11 to 27, and you can study it all on your own, but it starts off this way in Luke 19:11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered unto them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Now, you need to understand that the word occupy as it is used does not mean I am occupying this space and I shall not be moved. No, it doesn't mean that at all. To occupy literally means to buy and to sell and to trade and turn a profit. That's exactly what he's looking for. So, We have this parable, which means it represents something. The nobleman is Jesus Christ, and he goes off to a far country to heaven, and he's going to return one day, and he's going to return, and he's going to take account of us, right? The servants represent us. And I believe this is a church-age application because it's the kingdom of God. And by the way, there's ten servants, and ten is the number of the Gentiles. And as you go through then the accounting process, one guy turns a profit that's tenfold and the Lord says, good job, be a ruler over ten cities. Another guy, fivefold, good job, be a ruler over five cities. And you'll find that your profit sharing and your eternal investments is going to pay rewards into your millennial rewards. That's a whole other cool message for another day. But the guy who said, not me, man, I just wrapped it up in a napkin and I dug a hole in the backyard and here it is. I didn't do nothing with it. I just kind of kept it. He's punished. He loses his rewards. That's what happens. Now, let me just say all this, to say this. Because we have to make personal application or or we're wasting our time here today. What, and just ask yourself this. I mean, just, just think about it. Just prayerfully think about it. What true riches... Are you investing in while the nobleman is still far away? Think about it. I mean, he's ready to return. Because that is the purpose of giving. It's an investment to turn eternal rewards. You see, giving God's way is by grace. And giving God's way is with a purpose, And the last thing that we'll see, and this is our third point, last but certainly not least, is that giving is also by faith. And that is what is being taught in verse 15. Again, similar to your salvation, by grace through faith. So here in verse 15, Paul directly quotes, he references Exodus 16, 18. And Exodus 16 Is that great chapter on God giving manna to the children of Israel in the wilderness? Right? They cross the Red Sea and they're out in the middle of a desert now, and how are we gonna eat? Well, God's gonna provide. And He's gonna provide every single day, right? So let's get a running start. Let me read for you Exodus 16, 16 through 18. And it says, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded gather it. Every man according to his eating, an omer for every man according to the number of your persons, take ye every man for them which are in his tents. And the children of Israel did so, and gathered some more, some less. When they did meet it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. And you see that phrase in verse 18 is the phrase Paul quotes, In 2 Corinthians 8.15, on the tail of this sentence about how we should have New Testament giving, he takes them back to God providing the manna in the wilderness. This is the point. This is the thing that we've got to get. If you get this, you get it. And if you don't get this, you're not going to get it. You need to remember that the story of the children of Israel as they entered the wilderness, when they went into that desert... It was the time that God used to test them. It was the time that God used to grow them up and to mature them, right? He promised, he promised that he would provide for them. And he most certainly did. He gave them their food every day, one day at a time for 40 stinking years. Every man got all he wanted and all he needed. You want more? Get you some more. You got enough? You got enough. Good for you. Some gathered more and some gathered less. Every man, according to his eating, you still hungry? Go get you some more. God provided every single day. And I would say, that that is sufficient proof that God will always provide your needs. Amen? Amen. So you know what the lesson is? The lesson is about the bondage of covetousness. That's what the lesson is. The bondage of being covetous. So we'll go back to Exodus 16, and let me keep reading, picking up in verse 19. And Moses said, Let no man leave of it till the morning. Now you stop here for a second, because we don't talk like that. Let no man leave of it literally means leave any of it stored up until tomorrow morning. He doesn't mean let no man leave of it, like ditch it and throw it out in the weeds or something. No, he says let no man store it, let no man save it till tomorrow. And the children of Israel, not unlike a lot of us, right? Notwithstanding, they hearken not. <laughs> oh, yeah, thanks. No, thanks. They hearken not unto Moses. They're like, you know, oh yeah, thanks, don't store it, but you know, I think, I'll, I, think I will just kind of do You know, that's what they were doing, right? So they hearken not unto Moses, bad move, but some of them left of it, saved some of it, till tomorrow morning. And what happened? It bred worms and stank. And Moses was wroth with them. And they gathered it every morning, every man according to his eating, and when the sun waxed hot, it melted. Do you get what Paul's referring to in the context of the New Testament? Do you understand the reference to Exodus 16? Do you realize the picture that God painted in Exodus 16 and the consequences and the implications it has for our lives? They were, the children of Israel in the wilderness, to not save any of it for tomorrow, except on the Sabbath Eve. I know some of you know that. Okay, I know that too. And all of it that was saved on the Sabbath Eve was consumed on the Sabbath. So two days after that, there's nothing, right? I mean, they're they're trusting God day by day. If they tried to gather too much, if they tried to have abundant savings, God said, no, it bred worms and stank. You know what God wants? God wants from us the same thing he wanted from the Israelites in the wilderness, to have enough faith in God to believe that He'll provide again for you tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Let me just ask you something. Let's make this real simple, y'all. Seriously, I'm a simple guy. Let's just make this real simple. Really, honestly, truly. Has God ever not provided for you all that you need? I mean, come on. You know what our covetousness Our covetousness to hoard stuff It's a lack of faith. That's what it is. We hoard because we're carnal. And our multiplied stockpiles of resources, that's driven by fear. It's not driven by faith. Now, there's another parable that Jesus illustrates. It's in Luke chapter 12, and this will be the last one that we'll look at. And the parable starts actually in verse 16, but we're going to read verse 15 because Jesus makes a statement, and then he gives the parable to illustrate it. And the statement that he makes is is the crux of what he's getting at. In verse 15 he says, And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance, oh there's that word, abundance, of the things which he possesseth. Verse 16, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow My fruits, to bestow, stow, storage, to put into store, to save my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns, and I'll build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. The old boy's got a retirement plan. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So the parable ends in verse number 20. And Jesus goes back from storytelling to meddling. (laughs) And in verse 21 he says, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the easy question we have to ask is, okay, well, how can I ensure that I'm rich toward God? Well, you know, that's not actually that hard. Go to Matthew 6, 19 to 21, where Jesus is very clear, Sermon on the Mount, right? Lay not up for yourselves, keyword, treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but rather, lay up for yourselves still, but they're going to be treasures now in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What a great principle that is. So, in other words, when God gives you, friend, the blessing, the gift, the grace of abundance, don't consider it just for yourself. Consider investing. In eternal things. Now let me explain something. Because, again, I know, Troy, I knew it, man. This was going to be one of those days, bro. Relax. Can you all just take a deep breath? It's okay. It's okay. We're not asking for bank accounts. We don't care. God bless all of you. You're wonderful people. I'm not, and I don't believe the New Testament is, trying to set up some new legalistic standard that says it's wrong to have a savings account please understand that that to have a savings to have a retirement fund in of itself is not the issue but what is the issue what the issue really is that is worth considering is for you to ask yourself why am i doing it To what extent am I doing it? For what purpose am I doing it? What am I doing with the abundance that God has made me the steward of down here on this earth? Why do you save it? For what purpose? And I, and I will say this is a particular difficulty for those of us, all of us, that live in this time period characterized by Laodicea. Because Laodicea is known to be physically rich and increased with goods and spiritually poor. And so it's our tendency to fall into that trap. But this theme, this understanding is the whole point of chapters 8 and 9. Nobody is trying to say that you're in sin if you save. But God wants you to live by faith. That's what he wants you to do. And the question you have to ask yourself is who are you really trusting for your provision? Are you really trusting the Lord or are you trusting in your own two hands? I'm not saying be lazy because the Bible says we should work. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. But my goodness, you can take anything too far. Your flesh is willing to grab a hold of anything. You can save for the future, but for what purpose are you saving for the future? Like Luke 12, 19, just so that you can take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry? Is that why you're saving for the future? Or is it to simply fund your continued life of faith and ministry in your later years after you can't work anymore daily? I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 14 says, "...the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children." And if you're going to be like the rich fool of Luke 12, with much savings left behind after your death, then you have to ask yourself the question Jesus asks in the parable. Whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? Listen, almost everyone that I've ever known and and and, and fa- I mean, i I grew up in a very blue collar family, so i you know, I don't come from big money or anything. I mean, globally, I guess we're all wealthy, but you you know what I mean. I mean, almost everybody leaves everything to their kids. Okay, that's fine. But even when their kids have proven that they're just carnal, selfish wasters of every resource, in some cases, of everything that's ever been given to them. If you've proven that your kids are, have always been that way, do you then want to leave all of the hard work wealth that's left behind after you're gone to them? Or, or can I even say, has anyone even considered making provision for any leftover wealth to be used for ministry? Re- remember the laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven? I don't know. I mean, you make your own decisions. But this is giving by faith. Like the children of Israel in the wilderness with the manna. Trusting God to continue to provide for you every day. Even if you're so generous that you don't keep reserves, like the churches of Macedonia. It's trusting that if and when the time comes when you have real need, that God will supply. Because he said that he would. And if we continue reading in Luke 12, we left off in verse 21 and we pick up the next verse, 22. It says this. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat and the body more than raiment. Consider the ravens, which, by the way, in the Bible is a dirty bird. It's an unclean bird. They neither sow nor reap. Neither have storehouse nor barn, like the fool in the parable. And God feedeth them. And here's the zinger. How much more are ye better than the fowls? God does that for a dirty bird. And even if you're a dirty bird, you're better to God than they are. But you know what the question is? Whether or not you really believe it. Because what you believe is what you live. And all the rest is just religious talk. That's all it is. You know what giving God's way is? It's never some legalistic imposed standard. Giving God's way, it's by grace. Giving God's way, it's with purpose. Giving God's way, it's by faith. And it's in response to your gratitude for all that God has freely given you. And you know what the problem is in Laodicea? People view all that God gave them, and they view it as just a little because they give just a little. That means that you view what God did for you as, that that was cool, I mean, that was nice, thanks. But if you view what God did for you, How can you but jump in? Tithe, shmithe. Let's get busy. There's a lot of work to be done, and we're running out of time. I I want you to just remember this. and I'm done. God is never in the business of raising money. Never. He doesn't need your money. But he is in the business of raising children. That's what he's in the business of. He wants to grow you up. And he wants you to be like him. Right? And you know what? Again, deep breath. Oosa. Everybody okay? (laughs) You get to decide. Nobody's pressuring nobody. You get to decide to what extent you want to cooperate. It's totally up to you. Like the children of Israel with the manna in the wilderness. Some gathered more, some gathered less. Which one you want to be, right? This is God's perspective in the New Testament on giving. Let's pray together.